the invitation. Thank you also um, for the opportunity to share with you. As uh, Carl has very graciously introduced, I have the privilege of moving around our great country and mentoring Christian leaders from a wide range of ministries, churches, denominations, whatever. And I want to share with you the good news and the bad news today. The good news, and I'm sure you know, and it's happening in this church, is that lives are being saved through Jesus. Every day, every week, I have the privilege of meeting with pastors and almost invariably the first thing they say to me is, God's doing great things. Miracles are happening. God is at work. But the bad news actually is that in Australia, Christianity isn't doing all that well. I'll be very interested to see what the statistics are for this census that we've just completed because over recent censuses, the number of people who express themselves as actively Christian is decreasing in number and decreasing in percentage of the Australian population. Uh, about seven or eight years ago, there was some collated research done for the Melbourne metropolitan area and it's compiled in a document entitled All Melbourne Matters. And that research indicated that in the five years or so before 2009, every year the number of people attending church in Melbourne was decreasing by about 4,500 on the average Sunday. Now, if you just extrapolate that out, and there's lots of factors, and this won't happen, but I just did the very brief statistics, and that would mean that by about the year 2087, there'll be nobody going to church in Melbourne. Now, you might say, well, that's Melbourne. <laughs> Melbourne doesn't represent um, Ipswich or Queensland. But I actually think that that's uh, an accurate reflection of the general situation in Australia. And it's actually worse than that because when you dig down into what's actually happening there, one of the key areas where we're really losing is in the area of young people. Now, it's great to hear of a vital youth work here and of young people coming to know Jesus. That's that's absolutely fantastic. But the compilers of that work, All Melbourne Matters, in what I think is an incredibly poignant summary statement, say, we are losing the battle for the hearts and minds of young people in Australia. And what they have documented for the Melbourne metropolitan area, and it's, it's followed up and, and backed up by some of the natural, National Church Life Survey statistics, is that for young people in Christian families, that is people who come to churches like this, if you have 
a group between 14 and 19 years of age. If a person is in church at 14, there is a 50% chance that they will not be in church when they're 19. In other words, we're losing 50% of our Christian church young people in the ages between 14 and 19. We are losing the battle for the hearts and minds of Australian people. As you know, Christianity is doing brilliantly worldwide. Never been more Christians in the world. Probably never a higher percentage of Christians in the world than today. But in Western society and in Australia, as we're considering it this morning, something, something has gone amiss. I'm reminded of Paul when he was writing a beautiful book of... of, um, theology in Romans and it probably reaches its highest point in uh, chapter 8 and I'm going to quote from it a little later Uh, and, and you know who shall separate us from the love of God nothing can separate us from the love of God and then immediately after chapter 8 he goes into in chapter 9 a deep deep sadness he says My heart is breaking. This is paraphrasing. My heart is breaking. Why is my heart breaking? Because of my own people, the Jews. They're not with God. They're turning away from God. And I find myself on a regular basis these days praying to God and saying to him, crying out to him and saying to him, Lord, what would it take for Aussie people to come back to God? What would it take for revival to break out in Australia where people whom we, whom we prayed for or cared for or loved deeply for their hearts to be open to God instead of it seems to be people drifting away? What would it take? I, I'm not sure that I have the answer but there's a piece, another piece of research that was done probably about three years ago by McCrindle Research for a group called Olive Tree. And as part of that research, they asked the question of, I think it was about a thousand Aussie people who are not Christian. What are the key reasons why you are not a Christian? What are the belief blockers? to you considering becoming a Christian or becoming a Christian. Now, there were three major responses to that as belief blockers. Three that were almost together and in the high 60%. In other words, uh, more than two out of three people who answered this questionnaire actually indicated that this was a blocker to them. The first one you would be uh, not surprised about at all, it's church abuse or abuse particularly by leaders of vulnerable people and probably particularly young people, an absolute tragedy. Second, and I'm not going to uh, highlight this at all but mention it, was um, hypocrisy. Now, we don't have to accept that that's true for us, 
but we do need to know that this is what other people who are not Christians think about us, that we talk a good talk, but we don't actually walk the walk. That's what they believe. Hear me? I'm not saying it's true, but that's their perception. The third area, which was at 68%, is entitled judgmentalism. And I, when I, I read that, I thought, so what's that all about? I, I'm not sure that I know what it's about because I, you know, I, I certainly don't see judgmentalism within the Christian community that I'm aware of. But I think it is that when they hear us speak, more often than not, we're telling them what they shouldn't be doing. I think that might be it. So somehow or another, there's a perception that we're jumping to conclusions about their lives. What might actually be the antidote to even the perception that we are jumping to conclusions that are negative about people that may not actually have a good basis? As I was, uh, this is a few months ago now, as I was reading through and I love to just begin at the beginning of Matthew in my devotional life and go through the New Testament. And before you get too far into Matthew, there's a particular theme that begins to come out. And I'm going to quote from the message because I think it actually comes out very clearly from the message. I'm going to start from chapter 9 and just three verses from 35 to 37 where it says, Jesus went through all the towns and villages teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. I want to link that with chapter 14 and verses 13 and 14. When Jesus heard what had happened, he would, that was actually the death of John the Baptist, a, a distant relative, and he was grieving. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed those who were ill. It's this capacity for compassion that was very, very eminent within the life and ministry of Jesus. And in some rather unusual or unexpected circumstances. Uh, notice that, and this was the feeding of the 5,000 that's being led up to in Matthew 14, that Jesus had said to his disciples, let's just get away for a while. Um, we need some space. I'm grieving, Jesus said. I don't know how you would feel if you then landed in what you were hoping would be a retreat centre and you found 5,000 people waiting for you. Jesus had a most unusual reaction from a human perspective to that. It indicates that he had compassion on them. And if you take the earlier Matthew passage in chapter 9, I think you can link it and say, because he saw them, 
and they were like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, he looked behind the crowd to the individual and saw that in each person's life there was evidently some need that had led them to follow him in the hope that they would get something better or something deeper or be healed or whatever. And Jesus, instead of being concerned about self, actually had compassion on those people. And you notice that in the chapter 9 passage, it is linked directly then with the statement, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. And what I've followed through as I've read in devotional uh, reading uh, over the last year or two is this connection biblically between compassion and harvest between us actually not jumping to conclusions, getting ready to understand a person and where they're coming from, and that providing an opportunity for us then at the right time and in the right way to share our faith, to be God's colours and God's flavour. And, and I think Jesus was putting it on the agenda fairly early on in his ministry. Not only was he compassionate, but actually compassion opens the opportunity for harvest. That maybe that's what Aussie people are yearning for. They are like sheep without a shepherd. Everybody looks pretty good, or most people do. Not everybody does, but a lot of people do. But underneath, there's a deep, deep need that compassion could actually unlock. Um, the, the scripture that I read for my devotions also has, uh, it's a New Testament, but it has um, Psalms and Proverbs in it. And I've discovered some uh, incredible Proverbs. Um, one that I'll share with you this morning that's related to this whole issue in Proverbs 25 and verse 8. Uh, you may not know this is in the Bible, but don't jump to conclusions. There may be a perfectly good explanation for what you just saw. Whoa! I, when I first read that, that's from the message. I went back and had a look at other translations to see whether I'd missed it. That Don't jump to conclusions. There may be a perfectly good explanation for what you just saw. So if we can get underneath then actually there can be a understanding that leads to compassion. compassion. Compassion is actually the feeling part of love. Compassion is being able to be moved in our insides by what's happening in the lives of other people. And, and the Greek term is swankner, and I, you know, kind of that's the way it feels. No, you know, you get moved in your gut sometimes by somebody's story if we will take time and listen. Uh, I would imagine that some, maybe many of you, uh, have read Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. It's, it's almost a classic now. Um, I read it, well, I don't know, 20 years ago. Um, I couldn't tell you any of the seven habits. I, I could have a guess at some of them. 
that's not was mo- what was most memorable to me. It was actually an illustration that he gave. He was travelling in the underground in New York and in the carriage there were quite a number of people and at a particular station a man got in and there were two or three children got into the carriage with the man. And the man came and sat next to Covey and he describes that the children ran amok in the carriage. And he says you could feel the temperature rising with people's frustration and, and anger. And the man who had come in with the children was sitting next to Covey. So after a while, he could contain himself no longer and he turned to the man and said something like, excuse me, sir, but would you please control your children because they are disturbing the whole carriage. And he describes that the man kind of came into a bit of reality, looked around, and then he said, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I, I guess my children are having as much trouble as I am with the fact that my wife, their mother, died less than two hours ago. And Covey said, I changed like that. From judgment, from wanting him to do something because I was upset and angry to how can we help? Well, oh my goodness. And you know, these kinds of things happen so many times in our lives. I, I don't want to simplify it or make it's simplistic when it's, it's actually a, a, a deep thing. But I believe we can flick a switch from judgment to compassion. Uh, a while ago, I'm a walker and we live at Gosford, which is on the central coast of New South Wales, about 80 kilometres north of Sydney. And I'm a walker and fairly regularly I'll, I like to walk in an area where um, the Gosford Hospital is located. Um, It's a good walking area, but also it keeps me in touch with reality. You know, I I just need a dose of reality sometimes with people who have um, illness and sickness. And a particular day, I was walking up behind this couple, and uh, I don't walk particularly fast, but I don't stroll either, and they were just strolling along. And I don't know whether you've ever been in the situation where some people take up the whole footpath, you know, and it's not that they're big people or anything, but they just walk in a way. And so they were, they were taking up the whole of the footpath. So I kind of went to go around this way and I'll swear that the guy veered in that direction. <laughs> so I was about to work out whether I'd go down the middle or what I would do when they turned off to the right. And I knew the area well enough and I read the sign and it said, Oncology Centre. Oncology Centre. Do you know my attitude from self-centred smallness changed immediately. I don't know whether it's one of those people or a close relative or whatever. Oncology's not. I mean, it's good in terms that it does healing for people, but if you're going to the oncology ward, it's not good news. 
I actually believe that through the Spirit of God in us, there is the capacity for compassion to actually be stirred up and deeply indwelling us as people. If you're like me, and I suspect we are very similar, um, if I was listening to this now, there'd be a few things going through my mind and one of them would be compassion. Oh, that sounds a bit wishy-washy, doesn't it? Hey? Uh, that, that, that's, a, that's a bit wimpish, hey? Uh, bleeding hearts, hey? People who can be um, manipulated emotionally to care. Aha, this guy's a bit of a, you know, you have to wonder a bit about him. I actually have come to believe that compassion is not only incredibly deep, but compassion is a very significant part of the heart of God. You do not need to compromise your beliefs in order to be compassionate to people who don't believe the way we do. It's about hating the sin, not the sinner. Jesus was brilliant at that. The person who is compassionate is not necessarily the person who is a pushover, Jesus was incredibly compassionate and on one occasion, uh, and I'm, I'm going to paraphrase a little bit here, uh, the disciples came to Jesus and said, we've got to be very careful, we're in real trouble because Herod's out to get you. King Herod is on the warpath for you. You know what Jesus said to them? Tell Herod to get lost. Whew. In other words, there was incredible commitment and courage after he had been tried and had hung on the cross there was that tough Roman centurion who was the leader of those who had perpetrated that absolute brutality and seeing the dignity and courage of Jesus he said I believe he was the son of God how awesome is that we're not talking about a person who's a wimp. We're not talking about somebody who's easily fooled or manipulated emotionally. We're not talking about us compromising our values or our standards. This compassion comes out of the heart of God and is deeply within us. Compassion is actually a part of the fruit of the Spirit within us. It comes out of agape love which is that unconditional love that never, ever lets us go from God. And you know that those fruit of the Spirit are probably most well known in Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But most or many of the other letters of Paul have a similar kind of uh, listing or portrait of the character of God that comes through his spirit dwelling within us. And in, in Colossians 3 and verses 12 to 14, this is what the message says. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion. First up, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another 
If any of you has grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. In other words, our capacity for compassion comes from God and comes from the Spirit of God within us as we dig deeper and deeper into him, as he changes us from the inside out so that we can be courageous people, we can be people of real dignity and character and compassion is an incredibly important part of God's character in us. About seven years ago, I believe, I had the privilege, the opportunity to give input over four consecutive days at the annual retreat of the Protestant chaplains for the Armed Forces of Australia. Uh, And chaplains had come from all over Australia to the Southern Highlands near Barrel to a beautiful retreat centre. And there were about 30 chaplains uh, present and uh, it was a a wake-up to reality because uh, uh, there were about 20 deployed overseas at that time, several in Afghanistan. And I thought, wow, I'm amongst some people here who put their lives on the line for our country and for the gospel. Uh, Each day began with breakfast and then the first item on the retreating agenda was a, a chapel service and uh, a different chaplain led that each day. I have to confess that I didn't take too much notice of what happened. I was there, but I was speaking for an hour and a half each day after, uh, directly after, so I was, a, I was a bit preoccupied. The last day, I, I can't even tell you the name of the person who led, and, and I was a bit preoccupied, as I said, Uh, until it got to the time when he was to give just a little message. And uh, I think he said something like, um, you all know me, I've been a chaplain for 20 years uh, and you know I had a bad year last year. I think that's what he said. That's when I started listening. Okay? And uh, he said, "Uh, you know that I... uh, I had a stroke and it was relatively severe and I lost some use in one side of my body. I lost most of my speech. I lost some memory. What you probably don't realise is that I also lost my faith. He said I was lying in the rehabilitation centre which is a magnificent centre for treatment And all of the resources that you could ever imagine were on hand there and I had people coming to see me, the speech therapist, the occupational therapist, the psychologist, the social worker, the medical people, they all were coming to me and I was lying there feeling incredibly grumpy and I just wanted to say to the whole lot of them, go away, leave me alone, let me be grumpy. He said, the kind of thing I was thinking was saying to God, 
I've put my life on the line for you overseas on more than one occasion and this is how I end up. What's fair about that? He said, one morning a young woman came to the foot of my bed and I didn't want to talk to her, never seen her before. She stood at the foot of my bed and she said to me, I hear you're not doing too well. To which she said, I grunted. She took that as, okay, keep going. She said, do you mind if I read something to you? And he said, I grunted. She pulled what he recognised as a New Testament out of her pocket and she began to read. And this is what she read and it's from Romans 8. So what do you think? With God on our side like this, how can we lose? If God didn't hesitate to put everything on the line for us, embracing our condition and exposing himself to the worst by sending his own son, is there anything else he wouldn't gladly and freely do for us? And who would dare tangle with God by messing with one of God's chosen? Who would dare even to point a finger? The one who died for us, who was raised to life for us, is in the presence of God at this very moment sticking up for us. Do you think anyone is going to be able to drive a wedge between us and Christ's love for us? There's no way. Not trouble, not hard times, not hatred, not hunger, not homelessness, not bullying threats, not backstabbing, not even the worst sins listed in Scripture. They kill us in cold blood because they hate you. We're sitting ducks, they pick us off one by one. None of this phases us because Jesus loves us. I'm absolutely convinced that nothing, nothing living or dead, angelic or demonic, today or tomorrow, high or low, thinkable or unthinkable, absolutely nothing can get between us and God's love because of the way that Jesus, our Master, has embraced us. He said, she closed the New Testament, put it back in her pocket, and as much as she was able to, looked me kindly in the eye and said to me, this is the word of God for you today. Wow. And then he said, and I'm back, folks. And the whole place went up in cheering. And he actually raised the arm of the side that had been most affected by the stroke. I'm back, folks. That's the power of the love of God. You would not have had any idea that the previous year he was lying in that magnificent facility feeling so sorry for himself and angry at God. Somehow or another, the deep love of God, the compassion of God for him broke through into his heart and healed him. That's the God we love. That's the Jesus we serve. And Jesus, as he expressed this compassion through his miracles, through his teaching, we see it time and time again. The particular instance that has captured my understanding of the, the nexus between uh, compassion and, and harvest, uh, 
the particular uh, one that, that actually goes very uh, deep within my soul now is in John chapter 4. And uh, you possibly remember Jesus had, uh, in inverted commas, chance encounter with a Samaritan woman at a well outside a Samaritan village, outside Sychar. And Jesus had been travelling with his disciples and the disciples went in to the town to buy food for lunch. And it was the middle of the day and hot. And as Jesus was sitting there, a Samaritan woman came to draw water, which was most unusual. Middle of the day, there were lots of wells in Psycho. Why, she, why was she way out outside? Um, and Jesus spoke to her and that was incredibly unusual. I don't know what happened in was probably a 20 minute to half hour discussion while the disciples walked to and from the village. But somehow or another in those 20, 25, 30 minutes of discussion, Jesus got through to the heart of that lady. And notice that it was not only love, but it was also truth. Um, at one stage he said to her, go and call your husband. And she said, I have no husband. He said, yeah, I know, because you've had five and the man you're living with right now isn't your husband. So it wasn't that Jesus was naive about her background or maybe even why she was an outcast in, in, in the village. But he had somehow or another expressed such care and compassion for that woman that it changed her life and you know what, she went back into Sychar and she told other people, I think I've found the Messiah. Come out and meet him. And revival broke out in the Samaritan village because of a 20 minute conversation from Jesus with somebody who felt outside, who needed deeply for somebody to understand her somebody just to be alongside her. And you know what? If you read in John, John chapter 4, you'll find that as the whole story unfolds, it's interwoven that Jesus says to his disciples, look up, the fields are white under harvest. And I think what he was saying was, if we could just look up and recognise the love of God and express that love of God in a deep way to people who probably don't feel understood or cared for or who are outsiders. If we could just express that to fields that actually seem reasonably barren at the moment, they're white under harvest. Australian people could actually be revived to God through Jesus Christ. Do you believe that? I believe that that's what God is wanting to do. But maybe, just maybe, the prelude to that is that he wants us to go deeper before we can go further. That he wants to actually enliven within us the fruit of the spirit of love, compassion, and those beautiful qualities and virtues of, you know, uh, we saw some of them up on the screen. Love, joy, hope, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, humility, self-control. That that, I believe, is what the Australian people actually will connect with. And if we can, through the power of the Spirit of God, 
speak the truth in love at the right time after we have forged a relationship. I actually believe that what God is going to do in our nation is revival. And he's getting us ready for it now. But what he says to me and what he says to you, go deeper and then you'll be able to go further. Can we pray together? Father, thank you for that deep love.